Very nice to meet you. Very nice to meet you, Tim. How are you doing? I I'm doing really well, actually. Uh, today, I'm feeling like looking forward to meeting you, actually. That's how I've been. Cool. That's great. So, um, thank you, first of all, for finding time for the conversation. Thank you also for your books, which I, I have here. Um, I knew I wouldn't have time to read them properly because they're big and full of ideas, as I found out. But I've been kind of dipping into them. And uh, I read I read the Deep Wake book, and I'm digging into this whole story book. So there you go. All right. Okay. Yes. So you, yours are denser, so there's more there, but it's packed <laughs> with ideas. So I, I feel like I've um, I feel like I've uh, been watching lots and lots of trailers to a movie that I don't know how all of these different elements fit into one thing. Um, so, yeah, really looking forward to exploring those. And, and in the spirit of this, what has become a series, I guess, um, I, I'd like to start us off with this really obvious big question, which is, you know, as, as one human being on this strange journey to another, um, what, what, do you, what do you think this is that we're experiencing? And should we be doing anything with it? Or, you know, what, what have you made of this thing we call existence? Um, I don't think we humans were that different from the animals until five, 10,000 years ago. Mm -hmm. So I'm interested in, in the product of civilization, where it started, um, and I'm interested in what people dreamed about when they settled, for example, and started writing. And, do you mean and, dreamed about there in terms, you mean lit, literally having dreams or aspirations? Well, I converted to Zoroastrianism. I know. And yeah, the, no. This is something it's, we, I it's must a lot, understand. It's a lot less weird than it sounds because <laughs> we, we've gotten used in the West to Buddhism and Taoism. True. But Buddhism, Taoism, and Zoroastrianism are the three religions of the Silk Route. Uh -huh. So, you know, we put these isms on things when we come from the West. But if you if you lived in Asia for a few years or something, you discover that these isms are essentially Western fantasies from the 19th century or something like that. It's very interesting these days because a lot of sort of Chinese and Indian and Persian historians who now lived in the West, you know, Chinese Americans, Indian American, Iranian American historians, a new generation of those are basically going to rewrite the history of Asia over the next 30 years because what we've known about Asia so far has basically been a European fantasy. So that's like a really great sort of post-colonial project here. I think it's going to be mm -hmm. awesome. But if you look at the Silk Route, which after all is the biggest construction project mankind ever uh, succeeded with. And, and if it hadn't been for plagues, interestingly enough, it probably would have been around on the same massive scale that it once was. But if it hadn't um, been for what? So that again? If it hadn't been for the plagues, you know, the pandemics. Uh -huh. yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, there were Mongol invasions and things, but they they just enhanced. They enhanced it, eventually. right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So you, you'd have innovation from the east or from the north or from the south, but it would follow the route anyway. But if you look at the history of ideas along the Silk Route, Eventually, there developed a whole series of schools of thought. And some of these schools of thought are now being imported to the West. We call it like spirituality now. We have Western Buddhism, yeah. Western Taoism, these traditions. But when I started the Asian history of ideas starting about 40 years ago, then um, I discovered that, you know, with every oasis along the Silk Route, there'd be a slight difference in tradition from the next one or to the next one. So oh, what we call Zoroastrianism is essentially just a Persian tradition. Yeah. 
And Buddhism is essentially the Indian traditions originally, and then Taoism are the Chinese traditions of these schools of thought. You know, for example, you use the term Zen a lot in the West these days, which is a Japanese import. Now, if you know Korean culture is called Zeon, if you know Chinese culture, it's called Shan. Shan yeah. In Vietnamese culture, it's called Thien. And then when you come to Persia and India, they talk about the Diana and the Dhyana. And the Diana in Persia is the Dhyana, Northern India. We call it yoga or, or something like that when we import it to the West. But with the Indians, when they talk about their teachings, like their schools of thought, they talk about the Dhyana. So these are the same traditions. This is the same word. So, so this is the so same Sanskrit word that just followed you know, all the traditions. Am I hearing you right here? What you're exploring, this is fascinating, is, hmm. is the idea that there's a kind of continuum via trade of ideas because it one of the things that i got very it was probably my most successful work 20 years ago i don't come to it these days very much at all was on the origins of christianity and gnosticism and one of the key ideas there was look look not only gnosticism but the whole hellenic world also is connected directly to the to the east and through to india oh, you and i are going to be the heroes of hellenism when we finish this conversation because <laughs> i think that, that that is what we have to move towards today hellenism was a successful unification product of east and west yeah and that's what everybody's looking for these days i mean we're seeing these sort of very infantile powers now called communist China and the United States. And obviously none of them are up to world peace in any meaningful way. And they both have, <laughs> you know, immense amounts of hydrogen bombs and things. And, and it's a really scary situation, right? Because we know these systems are very much out of control. So the problem here is, is that decentralization is good for humans, but it's only technology that wants centralization. And, and you, can make, you can make the same argument, for example, European history. Um, there was a fantastic Dan Danish linguist who traveled around Europe over hundred years ago. And he, he basically cataloged the local dialects all the way from the Arctic, all the way down to Gibraltar, essentially. He crossed all of Western Europe at least. And, and, he kind of, and he noticed that the dialects would change from one village to the next. Right. And it was only with, written, with printed language. It was only when we started printing Bibles and eventually started printing books and newspapers in the 17th century that we sort of centralized languages and decided, for example, in your case, that would have been the Oxford dialect yep. or the Paris dialect became French or the Hanover dialect became German. Eventually the Uppsala dialect where I live became Swedish. So these national tongues were invented so you could print large amounts of books in the same language. And that then made it possible after the Napoleonic Wars to construct the nation states of Europe loosely built around that if we share the same language and read the we same newspaper in the morning, we have a shared agenda here. Yeah. Now, we have to understand how recent this is and that both the fruits and the problems involved with centralization are key here. Because I would argue that it is technology that goes for large scales and goes to centralization. And out of that came the ideas of nations and empires throughout history. So, the, And you're using there as an example, printing as, yeah, as pr a print, technology. Which yeah, and the internet today does that. But the internet, is, the internet is both pushing humans into small silos called echo chambers that you and I probably will talk about today, which is incredibly problematic. Yep. But at the same time, the internet itself I wrote a book called The Global Empire in 2003 with John Sedeckis, which is 18 years ago. Yeah. We argued in the book that we're going towards a global empire, but only on the technological stage, because the technology itself has already developed something called the Internet Protocol. It was developed in the 1990s, which is essentially a universal law for technology itself. Now we talk about the Internet of Things, and you know we talk about you know maybe we can also use technology to save the planet or whatever. But 
technology goes towards imperial structure, but we human beings really don't. And I'm against these huge systems, these sorts of these ideas of empires it's and an large imperial nations. structure. Yeah, imp imperial structures are technology savvy. So there were no imperial structures and we were tribal and nomadic. I mean, there was just the tribe. And keeping just the tribe together of up to maybe at the most a couple of thousand people was problematic enough. Sure. Now, as long as we spoke to each other, that was at least feasible. And actually what turned Homo sapiens into the most successful hominid was that we spoke better and collectively thought better than our competition did. So, so are you saying that the, are you, are you saying it's, uh, you know, is it kind of like a Marxist that you, that's being driven by the technology or are you saying that there's an interplay between, because if we developed these technologies also to enable us, didn't we, to, to cope with the fact that we were coming together in larger and larger groups and that facilitated Oh yeah, yeah that. but you, got, you need to know engineers, right? <laughs> engineers develop technologies, they have no idea what they're doing. That's very one true. Of, one of my favorite terms is called the guillotine syndrome. And of course it is for Monsieur Guillotine himself, he invented the guillotine, he was also killed in one of them. And if you told Gutenberg in 1450 that eventually the printing press would probably kill Christianity and Friedrich Nietzsche would come along, he would never have invented that machine. Like that was his ultimate nightmare. Brilliant. This was like a good Catholic. Br so, great example. So, yeah, so, so, but what I'm interested really in, and probably you're too, what I'm interested in is decentralization. And the best thing we ever did then, when it comes to being cosmopolitan and being curious about other cultures and languages and traveling and all that, that those were the trade routes. And that's why the trade routes are important. So when I went to Asia in the uh. 1980s and started studying Sanskrit and Avesta, which is the original Persian language, and and it was more a, a question of taste if I would convert to Buddhism, Taoism, or Zoroastrianism, because I think a lot of really smart Easterners today are converting to a Western religion because that's that's like saying that I want to embrace another culture than my own to be more than the culture I was born in. I want to be bicultural today. I think most of us want to. And I made the decision eventually after deep studies that no, my heart was closer to Zoroastrianism. So I converted that religion. But in reality, I would argue strongly that the Buddhist and the Taoist traditions are very similar. For example, uh, I do another podcast with Thomas Hamrick and Andrew Sweeney. They're both Vairayana Buddhists and I'm a Zoroastrian. And we're sitting there laughing when we discover the similarities between the Tibetan and the Persian traditions, which yeah. are of course logical because Tibet and Sogdia and Persia were, were related through the trade routes. They were neighboring countries, neighboring cultures. That would be a, that's as logical as discovering that the Germans and the British and the Scandinavians had similarities as well. So what I want to argue is that before we start centralizing culture, actually we just go from one village to the next and there's a natural small difference between villages and that is a cultural difference we can actually handle pretty well. But it's when we look at large centralized systems that are compared to other large centralized systems, we get the big wars of history. And, and this is, of course, where the problems start today when we increasingly live in a globalized world. So are these echo chambers that you mentioned earlier, which obviously is the, the theme of right now, <laughs> are those like villages? They are. So, okay. So we're comfortable with tribal size. Uh, we lived in tribal size for millions of years and certainly well, the you last can only know so many people years. can't you and you know it doesn't matter how you can only you are, relate you can only relate yeah. emotionally to that many people we have yeah. family which is by the way much larger than nuclear family family is something up to 40 in size which i highly recommend if you want your divorce rate to be lowered 
marry a whole family, like a large family of people, rather than just one person. Uh, but families larger than clan is, is the, when we talk about the Dunbar number, for example, the size of about 150, 200, that's actually the clan size we're talking about historically. And then outside of clan, the clans interact with one another in a tribal structure, meaning they don't kill each other, they rather support each other. So yeah. one clan might go off fishing, another clan goes off picking fruits, and a third clan goes off hunting, and then they trade with each other, and they have a larger tribe. Now, tribe is something human beings are very comfortable with. We, we, we don't have to train people to be tribal. Right. The mm -hmm. problem, though, is that we have gone for much larger sizes throughout history and actually mm -hmm. we invented empire first. So the bad empires and the good empires date back about five to six thousand years. That's mm -hmm. why I'm really interested in the Bronze Age when these were formed, mm -hmm. because I think the Bronze Age, when we tried to construct things that work, was much more interesting. The axial age, they came longer when we have tons of opinions about these structures. It's better to look at what actually what worked and what didn't work. And, and, and then uh, after the empires were developed, the first nations uh, came along. And I would actually argue that the Jewish nation was the first one because it had both a religion and a written language that united mm. the people around certain ideas. And it also had tribes within it. We talk about the 12 tribes of Israel. And uh, absolutely, the Jewish nation was the model which, for example, Hegel and Napoleon used in the 19th century when they constructed the modern Western welfare state or nation state or whatever. So we have a strong heritage here in the West from Judaism onto Christianity when it comes to these things too. So, so uh, all right, this, I, I, don't, I don't want to forget the Zoroastrianism because you've, you've, you've told me very interestingly how you ended up there, but not what it means to you, although because you've compared it to Taoism and Buddhism, which I, I know pretty well, Zoroastrianism, I know a little. Um, but you've also opened up this whole thing about tribes, which is really interesting. Because I, I, so let's hold Zoroaster over here for a second. And well, we, we can we can just call it the Silk Route or the, or the trade the trade route. Okay. Because okay. okay. the way it works, if you look at the maps of the small towns along the Silk Route or the large cities for that matter, they would always have a hospice of some kind where you would yeah, stay yeah. and have a meal, right? Yeah. They would then have a bathhouse. Yeah. You go clean yourself and you'd be naked in front of strangers, which is yeah. a good thing actually for a trade. And then probably a whorehouse <laughs> next door to it, you know, where, where the brothel man made sure more that great deals. Strangers. Yeah. <laughs> you know, to be honest about it, I mean, if if, if you got if you got to say there's the chairman of the board in your company where you work and you've gone off to do a trade yeah. deal in a foreign country and he comes back yeah. and you tell him that, well, actually, I even went to whorehouse with the guy from the company. He goes, yes, good. That means we can trust you guys for the next 30 years because you've been naked together, right? But but then also you have, uh, of course, you have the little inns where you eat and stuff. And, and But then you also have what's called the kostag. This is an old Persian word. And we get the word cloistered and eventually our monasteries in the West from that concept. So you would go to see a spiritual guide before you would set off for the next places. And the spiritual guy would basically just clean your head. So if you'd done a, you know, a few bad deals and you wouldn't be angry or mad about it, you would sort of sort that out, get your mindset on being constructive before you would then enter and go into the next town to do more trade deals. Like, so, 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 is, so this is, is, is that, sorry. Th this uh, is where spirituality as we talk about it today is meaningful in that spirituality trains us to accept the next. Oh. I've just lost you. I've just lost you and you've, you've frozen. I'm wondering if you're still there. Can you hear me? I can hear you. See. There. We're back. Ah, we're back. I have no idea what happened. 
<laughs> I've I've got to go through the computer afterwards. It might be some kind of <laughs> uh, you know what I heard a rumor yesterday. They could be Skype. There are actually problems with Skype. People still have Skypes on their computers, but they're not using it any longer. Huh. So I'll check that afterwards. I hope I hope it won't be interrupted anymore. Yeah. So that's fine. So so um so what I was getting from you, which I I love, fits very much. I mean, when I was doing my work on the ancient Mediterranean twenty years or more ago. And how things connected then one thing that seemed obvious was that the eclecticism which was giving birth to gnosticism and all the other mystery cults and the way they all related was a lot of it was coming again through trade that 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 the, the reason the gods had to be like well your god is the same as my god was to allow trust because if you took a a vow before the set a god that you both respected then if you broke it, you were in trouble. So this kind of like this mismatch of trade and the trading of ideas and the trading of spiritual values seems oh, integral yeah, to the whole absolutely. thing. Absolutely. This is where the tradition of the Kostogs come from. The Kostog that later became cloisters in Latin right. and then monasteries in the West, yeah. right? So uh, I think Kostogs are great in the sense you'd go to see a spiritual teacher or a therapist or whatever you'd call it today before you leave a certain community, because you might have done a few bad deals. So, you know, the whorehouse wasn't that we expected it to be or the bathhouse or whatever, but you need to go on to the next stop. And you also need eventually to go back home with, with your trade, right? And your revenue, whatever. And to do this, you need to go through some kind of spiritual some exercise. Right? The problem only arises later that there's so many different traditions. And when some of these traditions get hold of political power, or we have larger empires later on, that becomes way more problematic. So many of the conflicts we've had, we don't understand them because sometimes it's it's the level of the scale of a spiritual teaching that actually makes sense. But when you sort of scale it up, it can be really, really horrendous and very, very dangerous because it isn't meant for everyone and things like that. Of course, in the East, this is different between Sutra and Tantra. Tantra is basically, okay, you can learn this when you're ready for it. Uh, it's gonna be a tough ride but it will expose you to reality in a much deeper sense than you ever thought was possible. But you must be ready for it before you can do it. And it might take years of training before you actually get to that point where you're being accepted so you can do the Tantra. Before that, you do Sutra. And Sutra is essentially teachings on this works. This works in everyday life. This is about, you know, a Tuesday morning in a village yeah. in Northern India, how that would operate. So it's the, the inner and outer mysteries in the Western tradition. Yeah. And I think many of the problems that we try to sort out now philosophically, going back throughout history and rereading the last four or 5,000 years of history is basically, okay, some of these ideas are actually brilliant on smaller scale, but they're terrible on large scale. And some of these ideas should actually be scaled up to make sense. Mm -hmm. So we'll see where that goes, but it was certainly along the trade routes that people were taught that it's hard to like somebody who's not from your own tribe, but if you manage to do it and win him over, you'd be wealthy like mad and you'd be very, very successful. And that's yeah. originally where the idea of cosmopolitanism comes from, that we try to nurture in the large cities of the world today. Yeah, the whole, the whole Socrates thing of being a, a citizen of the cosmos. I love that. So um, so one of the things, uh, there's two or three things you've brought up that I really want to ask you to say more on. But um, just I want to just come back on this one, I think, first, which is one of the things which I'm exploring is like you said we you know we started in small communities and where you see you know tribes there's usually for a very certain point this very basic thing is conflict between tribes and the the you know if you pirate from your neighbor it's a lot quicker than growing it yourself and so we've done that throughout the ages and one of the things which it feels like we've done 
on the positive side of that same thing, which is obvious, it's very easy to see the negative of, is that we've been increasing that sense of who us is or who we are. So one of the things I love about linguistics is most people's most old names for a people just means the people. You know, we are the people. <laughs> and if you, you know, go through the American tribes, for instance, and they all, you find out that's their name is the people in that language and all that sort of thing. So you've got, we are the people and then the other. And then that's been increasing, increasing, increasing. And what's marks this thing which is happening right now is that through the creation of a global culture and interconnectedness and everything we've got, that there's been this huge jump in that so that there are a sizable minority of people who have broken out from all of that into not into, oh, all people are the people. We are, we are all of us. And then beyond that to, oh, oh, and we're embedded in nature and we are all of nature. And then the mystical underlying of that, which is actually I'm the whole universe. Yeah, but I would say that certain people who can handle that, and this is what I call a shamanic trait. So we do a lot of anthropology in our work. And um, we've discovered uh, through researching populations in Greenland, northern Canada, central China, New Guinea, you know, any climate zone you go to, any kind of environment, mountains, sea, lakes, whatever, we find the same pattern. So there's about 8% of the overall population have what we call shamanic androgynous traits. I would say about 4% of people are androgynous. That's what we usually call the LGBT population of any population in the world. And they're go-betweens between men and women. But then you also have the go-betweens between tribes. That's exactly why the schools who thought along the trade routes were run by shamans who had settled. So once a shaman settled and puts on a robe, we call him a priest. Then it becomes some kind of a spiritual guy. Now, some people then are born to not understand why the rest of humanity are concerned with skin color or concerned with how you look or how you speak or whatever. They just see people, period, right? But we have to expect that that's a very small minority of people who can actually handle that level because you have to be born with very shamanic personality traits to be able to handle that. Those are also, for example, the people who can take tons of psychedelic drugs without freaking out. So we have a lot of patterns here. We've also idolized these people in the 20th century. We call them rock stars and things. I think that's where we've gone wrong. I think that's where we scaled up the shamanic traits to the wrong level and should scale it back down again to where it belongs. But I would not expect the average Joe to be able to love people who look and sound very different from himself. I would expect them to be tribal. That's why today, when you look at the internet, which is cru truly global in scope, but go straight to local right away because we, will, we are gathering in our Facebook groups and some cultures and different tribes. So tribal comes back in a big way. That's why people who, for example, have a religious conviction and go to see a congregation on a regular basis can handle this much better because they've kept tribal all along. But it's, it's basically people who live in large areas, so you know, big cities and recently urbanized and been thrown into the internet world and, and the internet is a paradigm shift on a par with the printing press because all yeah. the old institutions are at crisis. Politics yeah. is at crisis, yeah. academia is at crisis, mass media is at crisis, and old industry, uh, they're all at crisis, right? We hate marketing and advertising more than ever. We should all tell them, right? So all these four <laughs> major institutions that used to run the show are in crisis. And they, of course, defend themselves and declare that they run temples and all kinds of things to pretend that everything is like it always was, although they're like eerily now discovering with the storming of the Congress in America and everything that this is not at all the landscape it used to be. So people are going tribal. I think we need 
to understand why that happens and respectfully understand how people do that. And then start sort of trying to seduce people that it's not that dangerous outside of your own echo chamber. Because if you get get out, if you stay within your echo chamber, you're definitely gonna belong to the digital underclass. If you manage to get out of the echo chamber and communicate with people from other chambers and create larger communities, you'll be much better off. And this is why I wanna go back to the trade routes philosophically and historically and, and explain that it was the very people who embraced cosmopolitanism who were the most successful. And that's gonna be the case today. We talk about the anywheres and the somewheres and even the so, everywheres. So, so Alexander, I, I, need to, I need to make sure I've got this, all right, because you, you, you're saying a lot of things, all of, a lot, all of which are very interesting. So are you saying, look, we've, the, the, the community's become too big, therefore we felt a need for tribalism, we need to honor that tribalism. Not everyone can have that level of um, connection which certain shamanic types can, and that therefore we need to support the tribalism, but encourage it to be a cosmopolitan tribalism. Is that what you're saying? Yes, so the word for that, a beautiful word for that is the old Greek word antagonia, antagony. We get the word antagonism from that, but it's milder and more fascinating. Antagony is what you look for when you want somebody to challenge you and your ideas. And that is the beginning of intelligence because yes, otherwise yeah. you're just mimicking, right? So, yeah, so to get out of your echo chamber and, and this is what we can teach 90 year olds and they get it right away. They just like, cause they're comfortable in their echo chambers and they, they're sitting on TikTok and, and you know, Snapchat and they have their different mediums and they always communicate with people who have the same ideas that they do. And then you just need to challenge them and say, if you're gonna stay in that kind of environment when you're 24, You'll be a stupid idiot, won't you? And they said, yeah, okay. So you need to get out of that echo chamber now and start communicating with people who are, you're not comfortable with. Because what we did with the internet was that we put a megaphone into the hands of almost everybody on the planet. And yeah. so far, everybody's been screaming at the top of their lungs and nobody's listening. Yeah. And now the algorithms are needed for us to sort this out mm -hmm. so we can tell who is worth listening to and who isn't. And this one is gonna get really cruel because we are going to create what we call an attentionless class society where the people who do give us quality and who talk about us and who talk about how we are gonna get better at what we do, whatever, who educate us and entertain us properly. These are the people who we'll all stick with and they'll go off and be the winners. But the people who just sit well, and memorize we just seen the that same with the, old things all over again, they're gonna be lonely. It, like it isn't, isn't, isn't that really what we've just witnessed in the US with the whole last president. I mean, the, well, he still is. Oh, yeah. I mean, the American, grabs the American dream is dead because the American you know, dream died with the old paradigm. The American dream was a very capitalist, industrialist idea. And industrialism and capitalism are over. And they're being replaced by informationalism and attentionalism. The most important thing today are your eyes, your ears, your senses, your mind, and how you communicate with the outside world and who yeah. gets to communicate with you. That's why I tell people that spam filters and ad blockers are fantastic revolutionary tools. Yeah, yeah, totally. yeah. absolutely <laughs> necessary. So I get that, that attention completely. Okay, I wanna go back and ask you about a thing that you zipped through really quickly, which was when you talked about the, the, the basically going look there's certain personality types that can shamanic personality types they can do psychedelics they can do all these things all the things which are really you kind of listed off a whole load of things that have interested me all my life so that's so they also often die young but they stay pretty 
Okay. <laughs> Jimi Hendrix is the quintessential champion. Yes, he is a god. So, and you said that they, they've been elevated and that was a kind of a mistake. Um, yes. So, so there's two things in there. Why is the elevation a mistake? And why, see, see, my intuition would be not that there's a certain person who's born with this propensity, although that there are people who have that propensity more than others for sure. Um, just like with everything else, like music or art or communication or running fast or anything, but that the what I've seen exploring sharing this for with people for the last well all my life really the whole of it has been people can pop anywhere in all sorts of shapes and sizes. The least the person you least expect can suddenly be a, a Buddha and or or can get that that shift into the deep awake and can just go bang. And so it feels more like an emergent quality. So yeah, it's it's not that widespread, but it's like any emergent quality, it's gonna start with a small handful and it's gonna get bigger. And the part of the process we're in is, is that increasing. Yeah, but I don't think because people claim they're shamanic that they're necessarily shamanic. It became an ideal after 1945 and we've got to understand why. Because we, we've had guys called Hitler and Stalin, right? <laughs> we created an atomic bomb that was quite a shock to humanity. I mean, August 6th, 1945, we'll go down to history book. It's probably the most important date ever because we were reminded that we were about to kill ourselves as humanity. So all these things are bad. And when we, we say bad things about patriarchy, we usually mean up until 1945, two world wars, hundreds of millions of people were dead, mostly young men, by the way. Yeah. And the problem after 1945, I know that Nick Land, although he's controversial, he and I agree very strongly that we sort of fell into the other ditch after 1945 because young men no longer had any idols to look up to. Maybe they did with President Eisenhower in the 1950s, I don't know. But after that, these hippie ideas that came in the 1960s, they were really meant for a small minority of people, to be honest about it, became sort of widespread mainstream ideas that this is what young men should be like. And of course, then we run into okay, the so drug problem. You just so, said it again there. So that is meant for a minority. What is yes? Why is this again to do with the tantra sutra thing? You know, that's something which can only be those who are the right type or the right. It's thing. like it's like in the 1950s when the teenager became an ideal. We have to yeah. look into the history book style and really redefine the 20th century. Yeah. That was unheard of in any culture prior to that. Yep. We talk yep. a lot about wisdom, you and I, these days, and how energy is fantastic. We need to balance the wisdom. The idea that wisdom is no longer needed and that energy is everything, that being young and sexy is everything. That was like James Dean and Marilyn Monroe. Yep. They both killed themselves. That should have been a warning enough. But they were more like Christ figures, like, oh, but they've been crucified because they were so beautiful or whatever. That is just pure nonsense. They were used to sort of shamanic characters that were thrown up on big walls, like these were the new ideals we're looking for. Yep. And I think a lot of the problems we run into, for example, with psychedelics and drugs and everything in the 1970s, and then had a huge, you know, a huge backlash with the war on drugs, which I would claim is the third world war. When you look at the disaster done by the war on drugs, that's like a third world war, another big mistake, because I don't think we should have put the shamanoid people there at the forefront as ideals for young men to be. 
I think that's a small minority should be that. And, okay. so and, that's and, the, and the mistake is being repeated today because a lot of a lot of the LGBT, I'm bisexual myself, and a lot of the LGBT activists today are furious with where things are going now. We're trying to reinforce the queer idea and queer spectrum on everybody. But in reality, that's something a small minority should be proud of, but not forced onto the rest of the population. For the vast majority of, say, young working class men in America today who vote for Trump, by the way, they don't like these ideals at all for all for all the right reasons because they, they, these are not their ideals. The shamanoid androgynous ideals are not for them. So, so how does how does the all fit their spirituality is to be a real working class man and have a job and get a wife yeah. and raise three yeah. kids and run a family? That's spirituality too. It's, it's, it's just like yeah, that's yeah, that's proper yeah. working class spirituality. Yeah, I get that. But how, yeah. so how for you does that all fit together? How does that the fact that you've got all these you know you've got the 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 shamanic types over here and you've got you know the somebody blue collar thing whatever it was you created over here and and but they're all part of one community so, they're all and, part of a society they don't necessarily communicate that much with each other because the shamans in most cultures they really live in the forest and they take care of themselves and then they walk through the battlefields and nobody kills them because they're shamans they can walk between seven eight different tribes they are diplomats they are communicators they're medical men and also the shamans take care not only of the relationships with other tribes the peaceful okay, okay. I, I got, they also I got, take care of the vertical communication they talk to the gods on your behalf let, let me take you back to the to the silk route and zoroaster and Taoism and all of that and also i, I want to know how this connects with your thing the 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 idea of uh uh synthism but, but how, how so so leaving aside the social thing for a moment just but taking the kind of so the spiritual or the the nature of life thing what what does that mean as a Zoroastrian or a Silk Rooter, that you've got people who are shamans and have got this, but then others who are not, who've got something else. Is it, how does all, do you understand what I'm trying to ask? Oh, how does that I, I, mean, I, I, think, I think most cultures, they, they always work with what's called an archetypology. So if you go see an older woman in New Guinea, she will look at you with her eyes, stern eyes, like, and then she will tell you what kind of man you are and what she thinks is good for you. And mm. then she will show you off to some mentor, some older version of yourself who can guide you, who, who becomes your spiritual uncle or something. Okay, like that. yeah. That is yeah. how culture actually has been operating for. We, we had, didn't have this idea that we were all alike. This idea that we were all alike is a very recent Western idea. Is the idea now not so much that we're all alike but and and this may be i'm quite open to this being wrong and and for the reasons you're saying but i would have thought that the idea now is quite different again it's like one thing that strikes me with my kids and watching them is it wasn't very long ago where you would you would expect to be the same as your parents whereas now you know do the same job be trained by them you know fill their gap when they left the gap you would step in but now the feeling is that you have the potential to do anything and then you'll find your particular thing. But that you'll, and that the idea that you will follow in the footsteps of your, your family is very rare. Oh I mean, yeah, you have that idea when you're 17, but you don't have that any longer when you're 23. In what way do you mean that? Between 17 and 23, people are very hard hit on the head and suddenly they limit their future options. Oh, of course. Because they have to, but, yeah. But of course. Otherwise of course. they can never grow up, right? Of so, course. Yeah. But, but, the, but the idea there is, is that kind of potentiality, that there's an openness which wasn't there in previous societies where you Yeah, it's kind of two ditches here. One of them is that uh, you can be anything you want. It's like a childish fantasy. The other one is yeah. you must be like your parents. You must be like your parents. It's like caste system. 
And yeah. caste systems are arrive with permanent settlement over long periods of time and large dense populations and conservatism. And then you're forced to be like your dad was and you're yeah. probably quite mediocre at it. That's why India remained it, poor for so it, long. It, because a, caste systems kind of, aren't very like good. A, they just, they just good with peace, but they're not good with prosperity. But caste systems are actually an urban thing. They don't exist prior to that. No, I think archetypology, which I'm very interested in, I, I don't think we can do psychology, for example, at all, unless we do archetypology first. The first thing you wanna know, what kind of man or what kind of woman or what kind of in-between are you first? Because otherwise you go to see psychologists and they will all want us all to be exactly the same. They will try to make us all be the same with the same sort of even temper or whatever. And I think that is disastrous to us. I think so what we makes, are different and should embrace our differences. What, well. what makes us, I mean, with the, the, I mean, it feels like, you know, the, the, the root of that caste thing you're talking about in a way is, is goes right back to nature. It's in everything in nature is trying to find its niche to survive and everything in society is trying to do it. And what happens when you're 23, if you suddenly go, God, I've got to find a niche in which to survive. And, and so, what makes us those things in your mind? What makes me have this disposition or you have that disposition or? Different talents because we love to serve. It's fundamentally human to contribute. I don't even talk about work in, in, in our books because I say contribution. I love that. I yeah, love so that. Unless you that's, can contribute, you, you, you are no value. And, and, and it's a man, you probably go and kill yourself. Yeah, you know? that's right. So, so you want to contribute. That's women beautiful. do it naturally because women are all part of the reproduction process, whereas men actually have to fight something to give them a purpose or sense of meaning yeah. in their lives. And this is where this idea comes in that I do a lot of phallic philosophy. So I'm basically doing okay. philosophy. What does it mean to be a man? Because after 1945 and Hitler and Stalin, who were fake phalluses, clearly like little boys running huge empires and running them like devils, right? They were no good at all. But we need to find better models of what it means to have a genuine strong masculinity where you can really contribute. Now, sometimes you find that in the corporate world, but that's unfortunate. The corporate world is of course very commercialized. So the question is, how could you be more of a spiritual masculine character? And I think that's where you and I meet, that we wanna foster this in ourselves, in other men around us and this idea we need to work on. Because the young men today are either stuck in a very effeminate idea of what they should be, which they're very uncomfortable with, or in the idea of the superhero, which is like a comic parodic idea. So if you ask young men today, you do huge service, a 23 year old man, they have no idea what it means to be a man and they're terrified of it. And all they've heard from everywhere they go, especially in England and Sweden where you and I live, is that it's terrible to be a man in the first place. I think this is disastrous. And this is where I agree with, say, from Camille Pagla to Jordan Peterson. They've done work with this. You've done work with this, Tim. We might then go even deeper. Jan Sedekvist, in our work, we go through all of history the last four to 5,000 years, and we actually celebrate the Bronze Age in the next book we're writing. And rather think a lot of the problems are with the Axial Age that came later, okay. when we had a lot of pillar saints and boy pharaohs that actually more predated Hitler and Stalin than the predated of the ideals we need today. So what is so, it you see in, that, in the Bronze Age that attracts you? Um, they were doers. They were constructors. This is the irony. I'm like a philosopher says philosophy is no good. I actually prefer architecture. I prefer engineering because I prefer people who do shit, right? Get things done. But I think young men are finding the same ideals today. And basically the young men who come to me for advice said, if you can't pick up an engineering education, that's a good place to go. You will definitely work the rest of your life. Um, why not specialize in solar and wind power when you write it, you know, and, uh, you'll be fine, women will want to marry you, you'll be okay. So just, just go through engineering <laughs> school and you'll be okay. Because it is a traditional masculine thing where men actually contribute today. Because I think 
the two major products that you and I are both really working with is one that I call ecotopianism and the other one is cosmopolitanism. And it used to be the chief and the priest. So the chief and the engineers of the world are the characters that wanna rebuild the planet so it's sustainable. And these are enormous challenges ahead of us. How do we save ourselves from climate change? And how do we build a better world that's sustainable? But it's a fantastic engineering opportunity. And yeah. I think all young men who come and ask me for advice, I said, hey, if, you, if you're good at maths and physics, off you go to engineering school. And, and here's, by the way, here are a couple of texts written on ecotopianism. It's like environmentalism gone times a thousand. It's like environmentalism, which is basically dystopian, Greta Thunberg bitching and complaining. But here is really doing something, getting things done. I think young men are, they love this. This perfect as Fantastic. an engineer. I, I can relate and to the that. other one is the more priestly one that you and I are personally involved with, which is cosmopolitanism. And this is just yep. gradually teaching people that strangers are not dangerous. Actually, they're interesting and fascinating. And, you know, people look different from you or speak different language or whatever. Get involved with them immersively because these cultural connections are also incredibly so, important. So, Alexander, this is where I need you to, to, to just to just probably just put the final piece in place to, so I can get what your vision, because I really relate to everything you're saying and relate to that last bit, especially. And I can see those types. I'm definitely on this side, not on the not on the engineering side, but the um, when people talk about tribalism in a positive way, often it's the opposite of cosmopolitanism, whereas for you, it feels integral to it. So, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So I live that's in, what I want to go. I live in Istanbul half the time. I live in Istanbul half the time because it's a thriving, huge city of 50 million people, but it's been around for 5,000 years. Yeah. It's like living in the middle of history, living history. Yeah. And yeah. amazing place. Istanbul's entire history has been the sort of here's Chinatown, here's Jew town, here's Arab town, here's Englishman town, here's Italian town. Uh, people do gather within their own tribes in large cities, but they so communicate in, in between. I this is you. why trade okay. routes are fantastic. I hear, fantastic, you. I hear right? you. So you're forming communities which are actually realistic because yes. they're of a size where you can actually get what you need and contribute what you have. Yeah. but not closed tribes. tribes no. which, and which then the gay guys cosmo- and the lesbians and the shamanos cosmo- walk in between. Oh, they, go in, they don't mind impact. at all. They're like, no, I'm going to get out of my tribe and find my own tribe and it's going to be, you know, the gay quarters or whatever. And then they do art and fancy things. Mm-hmm. And, and the shamanoid people are usually the ones that are sort of, they're in the city where they have to be there, but they're like, uh, I'm getting out of here and I'm back into the forest, taking tons of drugs and talking to spirits. But they come back into the city I've again, got it. I've where got they're the, the spiritual guys, right? So tribes, a kind of tribal cosmopolitanism, the two linked together. Yes. And that has huge implications, of course, for the other thing you mentioned, Jordan Peterson, of those things of how we view identity politics and all of those mistakes, actually, I think. Yeah, and this is the case. You can't do cosmopolitanism unless you do tribalism properly first. If you're going to force people to live in a place like London, and they can't live in the same neighborhood as people look as they do or speak the same language as they do. And you try to force them because you're going to get the segregation is going to go away. You become pure Stalinist. That is exactly what Stalinism tries, right? Tries to do. It tries to, to force people to hang out with people they don't like. And that just makes things worse. It, it's, yeah. That's not the way forward at all. We have to be much more humane about these things and think of gradual developments. But what we should be really sort of, I don't say utopian, but protopian, like have really, really great ideas today because they need it. That's when it comes to ecotopianism because okay, we've got so to fix the planet, right? You've put in a middle piece, it feels to me, in a vision which I'm exploring. And, but the language I'm using, I think maybe you may mean different things by the same language. So 
So for me, my most recent work has been around this idea of the, the emergence of the individual, which is somebody who's, which is, we've seen the emergence of the individual so that you're now no longer just unconsciously within the collective, you're actually becoming more and more yourself. This is still very much for me a work in progress. I, don't, I think it's a good thing and it needs to continue from which can come the individual conscious of the greater unity, the cosmopolitan in the social sense that you're talking about, but also in the mystical sense of you, if there's another level which opens up, so that you've got uh, the, the individual conscious of unity with the universe or unity with the collective or the, the cosmopolitan. Now, I'm aware from the, some of the stuff I've read from you that it sounds to me like individualism, and you mean something different by that. Yeah, and but it's a negative I use the word individual the way you use your individual. So we're right. talking about um, a different human identity than the very Western Cartesian individualist idea that especially America's obsessed with. Like, uh, I believe in myself all the time. It's just like, well, we're all <laughs> sick of that, aren't we? <laughs> I mean, if the internet has killed anything, it's, the, it's, the, it's this guy who sends a newsletter every week about his latest efforts. And, you know, it's like, we got, oh, good boy, you've done a good job again. It's just, <laughs> The Cartesian individual, and, and Americans get so obsessed to me when I talk about this, but I say, listen, you pretend you go to different churches on Sundays, but in reality, America has one religion, it's called individualism, and we exported it from Europe, it was Descartes, it was possibly Manuel Kant in his deeper version, but already after Kant and after the French Revolution and the individual as the citizen had reached its peak as an idea, people were starting to think that maybe we are more collective after all, but they ended up in two ditches. And the two ditches we got in Europe was individualism is more radical sense and collectivism is most radical sense. And they were both terrible. This is like Hitler and Stalin again. In reality, we are all individuals because we're tribal beings. If I want to do philosophy on individualism, I would go and talk to polar bears because polar bears are true individuals. They only mate and then they never see each other again, right? They even eat their own kids if they have to, they don't care. They're just like, they're true individuals. They're like Americans, right? But, they, polar but there's bears. something- But the, human the, beings are deeply social beings. But how we've managed that social identity- Yeah. Has, it looks to me over the, you know, the whole, the period of, uni, of, the, of individualism, whatever it is, the 200 years or, or whatever it is, that it's increased and it's still increasing. And I agree, it is now at the point where it needs to flip into something else. But the, I mean, when I look back at old films, the one of the times I get it a lot is I watch back old films of, of the UK and literally all the guys in one class are all wearing the same hat. You know what class is everyone in? Cause it's like, are you wearing a cap? Are you wearing a bowler? Have you got a top hat on? It's like, and they're all the same and they're just moving around and they're all the same. Now you look now. And everyone is different, you know, still is. Yeah, on the surface, Tim. Yeah, but the but thing is that those guys who looked the same 50 years ago probably had very different ideas. These days when they go into school class of 17 year olds, they look different one from the other, but they share the same ideas. And I think that's a lot worse. I think ideology, sure ideology is much more cynical, collective. Alexander, I think, I think people, people, you know, I'm not, I'm not, not sure. I think there's probably a greater, a greater diversity of ideas now than there's, no, I there's ever been there part of the problem. No, I'm sorry, I don't. Huh, okay. <laughs> I, and I think America's got stuck with only two ideas and they're totally opposed to one another and they don't even understand or even interested. Which, in which are? Well, it's called Biden and Trump. Oh, okay. All right. <laughs> so, which is tragic. Uh, so, the um, 
But okay, maybe you're right to a certain extent that maybe the truth is somewhere in between. But I think if you look at the fact that we dress differently from one another and fashion is more diversified than it was 50 years ago, well, I think ideologically, tragically enough, we're more the same. And that is because we all use the same media. We all end up in the same types of echo chambers. And because of that, it's not really the I idea. think there's yes, a contradiction in the echo chamber. It's echo chamber ideology itself. But that, isn't that it, aren't you contradicting yourself? I mean, I don't want to get into this too much, no. but it just feels like there the 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 fact is that the if you go back to the Napoleonic Wars or whatever, you see people seem to be in one echo chamber, depending on whether you're in France or in England. Whereas now my I'm finding, oh God my dear friends, some of them, have gone into an anti-vax echo chamber and believe in these conspiracies only recently. And it's like, wow, how did you end up in that? I don't relate to that at all. And, and suddenly there's such diverse ideas going on and they are all echo chambers. There's just so many of them. Yeah, now. but it's just, it's just that we, sh we sort of, the horizontal has gone vertical or if you want the other way around. So uh, yes, you have less in common with your neighbors than you used to, your physical neighbors, yes. But, but even if friends. you travel abroad to another city, you will meet a lot more people who are like you than you would yes. years ago. Yes. So yes. it's just that it's just, we have to remember that these old institutions of the capitalist industrial age are all falling apart. They've been falling apart since the 1980s. They therefore provide us with a far weaker identity than they used to. And people try to compensate for the, that lack of identity because our need for identity is, is, is as strong as ever. And we then go to these subcultures online. And the weirder the ideas are, the stronger the identity production becomes. So, you know, it's like astrology is back. I expect the next generation of feminists to fight for PhDs of astrology at universities in the UK or something, because the, the guys are going I think to you conspiracy could do them already, and conspiracy theory is only astrology with testosterone thrown into the mix. I mean, <laughs> it's just a belief in bigger orders that dictate how we live our lives. And in reality, all these people are just terrified of the fact that there is no such order. There are no conspiracies. That's what terrifies the conspiracy theories out there because the world is really contingent and nobody runs the show any longer. And the vast majority of people who pretend to be leaders have no idea what's going on. Yeah. yeah so the, I agree. The, we are now in a limbo. This is what's called a paradigm shift. And what you and I are looking towards and what we try to build as philosophers is to see, can we build a new renaissance for the art and a new enlightenment for thinking? Because that's what we did in Europe successfully, but it took about 200 years after the chaos when the printing press came along. And finally, we started using the printing press for smart, cool things. And yeah. when we come to the 19th century, we finally figured out that this was about enculturation and education. So yeah. we basically decided, wait a second, everybody can learn how to read, write and count yeah. because yeah. the printing press provides us with such cheap materials. And that's when the wealth we see today took off. Yeah. The only problem with that was that we also exploited the planet in that process. And that's yeah. not sustainable. And that's why cryptopianism now becomes the next level of what engineers have to do and, and a good motive for young men to get involved with. I love that. Okay, so so can I take you right back to the beginning? And and also I want to, I want to get in the whole thing of, um, uh, synthetism, um, the, the, which I've been looking at, I've just so we started off and we went and headed off down the trade, the trade route, and all of those different traditions and Zoroastrianism. But what does that actually mean to you about the nature of your life and about the nature of your existence and what we're in? And 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 I presume synthetism is your articulation of what it means to you. Am I right? Yes. So Persia is 
the historical connection between East and West. And I discovered when I started doing philosophy in the 1980s that there's no way I would start with the Greeks. That would just be embarrassing, right? Because Western philosophy started with the Greeks and there's the mythology that everything started with the Greeks. It didn't. The Greeks wrote down a lot and we managed to save their texts, but the Greeks basically copied and mimicked what the Egyptians and the Babylonians and the Persians- Everything and the starts with the person the before, it before them. Yeah. yeah. So the history of ideas is Asian. I would say it's Asian. And then I would love to throw in some psychedelics from Peru and Mexico into the mix and make Europe much more marginal than we usually make it. I think Europe, because we got the printing press and if you can on boats 300 years ago and managed to therefore occupy three of the continents and basically kill people there and populate them, we think we're, you know, humanity's ever gift. We're not. We have 400 years of prosperity. Europe is now falling back into a role where it maybe should be. America is no longer a European continent at all. It's much more mixed and cultured. So I think it's, it's, this is a good time since we have to realign ourselves with digital and try to understand what digital is because our favorites, Kant and Hegel and Nietzsche, had no idea digital would come. So this is what we need to do today as philosophers to really understand what digital is. And how could we connect digital with East and West while we're at it? So the crazy wisdom teachers that I have, there's a guy in America called Mark Stallman. There's another one called Parvis Varyavand in Iran. These are guys who are like assholes with me. They're after me all the time, but my God, they make me think, right? And some of the best ideas that come out of the conversation with them. And it was Stallman has said to me several years ago, you're perfect part to do the East meets West meets digital. That's really your project. And I said, yeah, that's a personal thing. And so John Sedekvist and I, we're gonna write our sixth book now, but our entire over is about trying to unify the Eastern and the Western traditions. And while we're at it, why not connect it with digital, whatever digital is, because digital will force East and West to become one anyway. And this is why I go to the trade routes. I go to the most successful systems we've seen here. And when we go, for example, to ancient times, we discovered that Egypt tried to run its show as an empire for about six years before it imploded. Persia managed to run empires for 2,200 years. And I find the difference between Persia and Egypt a bit striking now we compare to the United States, we compare communist China, because it turns out that if you have a system with power sharing installed early on in the system when you design it, it, lasts, it can last for thousands of years. But when you install a system where a young man steps to the forefront and says, I'm the leader, you're all gonna follow me. We get the Hitlers and the Stalins and the Maoists, and unfortunately get the Xi Jinping's of the world. And they cause tons of havoc. They start wars. They probably put atomic bombs eventually in the atmosphere. And, and all the things we're terrified of today are likely to happen if you get these sort of boy pharaohs to become dictators in different parts of the world. Now, I'm a strong opponent, for example, against the mullahs of Iran, but I want them gone. But I have no naivety that Iran is going to be like a secular democracy the day the mullahs disappear. It might as well go totally alt-right, have an assless dictator in place in a few years, and then they build the atomic bomb anyway. So I'm not being naive about these things, but I, I think we should all be very, very alert and understand that we did manage to build in the European Union, North America, where systems where actually power sharing are installed. From, the, from day one. So when we can understand digital now, we can sort of incorporate that on the level of power sharing is the number one priority. Because otherwise we get these dictators, we get the boy fires, we also get these spiritual teachers called pillar saints who speak very highly of themselves and know the truth and they become fundamentalists and they then force their opinions on us with bombs and things. And those are the things we should be terrified of today. So that was fascinating, but you, you took us off into kind of a social thing again. 
which is which is real lovely. It's been a real theme of this conversation. It was a beautiful surprise. Well, not a surprise, but very nice. I, but I want to I want to kind of push you just because of my own personal interest to say, yeah, but okay. So so, but what is it to do to, to, to like philosophically or theologically, if you like, even that? What is it that you see? in the way we understand the nature of existence, which can do that, which can bring together the East and West, which can, which can, and the digital, and which can tell, inform what this is that we're experiencing, the journey from life to death, death itself, you know, the, the, the nature of what, what we experience right now, this extraordinary moment. Yeah, but I'm not so much of an existentialist. It's, it's more, maybe it's your, your area. Uh, uh -huh. I, I think I decided to do social philosophy because I'm interested in people, society, and I study economics and political. So your Zoroastrianism is more social than it is. Uh, is that is that? Oh, what but I the, re the religion itself is much more social. Than the other ones. I, I think. See. I think where Zoroastrianism differs from Taoism and Buddhism is that it's a much more social religion. Ah, Zoroastrians even they don't think very highly of people who leave the community and go out in the forest and sit on their own and uh, right. meditate. Rather, I think Zoroastrianism for me today is is almost like a weapon against self-appointed pillar saints, because. Uh, that's where fundamentalism starts too. I'm probably much more skeptical about Gnostics than you are, for example, because well, I see- I'm, I'm also very skeptical. About okay, good, good, good. They were the same point. Because when Gnosticism arrives in government or governmental level, we get Hitler, we get these Pol Pot of Cambodia, for example, yeah. Rousseau was, was, was clearly Gnostic. And the problem is once you start separating body and mind, you either get a pillar saint who, who cherishes his mind, but hates body, especially in others. Or you get a boy pharaoh who loves his body, wants to go to war all the time, but forgets about thinking. And, and, and it is the, it's the combination of body and mind that is fundamental for society, especially for men, because this is the priest and the chief. And we should always separate the two. In Zoroastrianism, they're totally separated. In the Persian empires, the emperor was called the Shah and Shah, the king of the kings. And the Mobid and Mobid, the priest of the priest, had separate capitals, separate courts, must never meet. They were on different affairs altogether, so they wouldn't be one of the same thing. And the Mobid and Mobid would not appoint his son to be the next priest because he would actually take the second son from the king to be the next priest, just to make sure that the systems were aligned to one another, supporting one another, but still kept separate. So that to separate body and mind and still keep them together is what we constantly struggle with. And you do it in your work, obviously yeah. in your books too. How do you how do, how do you become a monist? How do you how do you fight dualism? Because dualism is always a curse of humanity, and still manage to keep these things separate when you have to. Yeah, I mean that's fascinating because I think in the popular mind, Zoroastrianism is seen as a, as a dualist philosophy. No, no, it's often. not. Oh, God, if there's the, probably the most misunderstood thing ever on Wikipedia is Zoroastrianism. I tell you that. <laughs> Any Zoroastrian would agree on but that. But generally, isn't it? It's yeah, viewed because as like it's read through leading the eyes. to Manichaeanism it's, yeah. and all of oh, that. Oh yeah, it's 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 read through the eyes of the Christianity and Islam. Azura Mazda and you know. Christianity and Islam have always tried to turn Zoroastrian into some kind of infantile precursor to their own faith. When in reality, the Zoroastrians were adamant. They were not, not Gnostic. They went after Mastak. They went after Mani. They, they, didn't, they thought Gnosticism was a curse on humanity, especially if it got close to political power. And Mastakism was practiced for a brief period at the end of the Sassanid Empire, and it caused havoc everywhere. It more or less became Pol Pot's Cambodia. And that's why Mastak was put to death, right? So the Zoroastrian tradition is very modest, and this is what it shares with Buddhism and Taoism. Right. 
Well, what all are, the I teachings mean, along the trade routes teach what, you that it, everything in the that, world is connected with everything else, right? Th does it have that quality which I really associate with Taoism, which has always been one of my favorite places to go from when I was very young? Because it had just the, the you know the, the Tai Chi, the Yin Yang symbol is that it's it, it's kind of what I would call unidual. It's all one and it's two. And and yeah. the, the, so that my whole philosophy now would be based on exactly on that. You know, this is the one in relationship with itself. That's what oh, you're very. Think. Yes. And I was very close to converting Taoism. That was the other option. Why I didn't, though, is important. It is that the Taoist yin and yang to the Zoroastrians is a third level, not the first. So the masculine feminine is not the dominant. It's like a, the masculine feminine cosmology of Taoism is not the first step for Zoroastrians. The first one is to separate and the unify body and mind. Then actually the second one is to separate and unify warfare and hunting because to kill an animal and kill another human being are very different things Zoroastrians. And only after that, like a, a reward at night comes sexuality and man and woman. And a smart guy will then ask me, so what would be the equivalent of the three steps for women? And I said, they have an easier journey because the first one for women is dogs or babies. The second one for women is shoes or dresses. And the third one for women is men or women. But you know, those are the day-to-day <laughs> day activities in a tribal context. I, I can see with your beard though, Alexander, I can definitely see us <laughs> in the Taoist sage. I don't know, it's, there's something yeah. of, the, of the Taoist, the archetypal Taoist sage. Well, you know what? Once you travel through Xinjiang or Tibet or Afghanistan or Central Asia, you discover these traditions go in and out of each other. Of course. Bodhidharma, for example, who founded Chan in China, that later became Zen in Japan, was not a Buddhist prince from India at all. He was a Sogdian trader. He came from current Afghanistan. I and didn't it's know even that. very likely that the Buddha himself was an Afghan, not an Indian. Yeah. Because Gautam yeah. Shakyamuni is probably Shakyamuni is probably an Afghan name. It's not even an Indian name. So th these, all these guys in these traditions came out of the Silk Route and the trade routes. And, yeah, and I yeah. think today, when we look at spirituality, I think a good place to go is to study these trade routes throughout history and then discover what worked and what cultures okay. work, which cultures are prosperous, so how wealthy, can we, how can we and apply, take care of the children. And why does we, the, why do they work? So how how do we apply that? insight of the way in which this is your tr different tribes all connecting in a cosmopolitan way isn't it this is that's how we can actually start making the echo chambers healthy making us is that what you're saying yeah it's like when americans try to defend individualism i just tell them why do you fight for that word it was even imported from the french why don't you fight for the two most beautiful words in the american english language instead which are community and congregation and Americans talk about community and they talk about congregation all the time. And I said, that's human. That's America yeah. at its best. It, yeah. It's, it, it's, yeah, you go to church on Sundays. You, you belong to a congregation. So, so one of the things- And within the congregation, you can have a responsible role within the community. That's why America is prosperous still today because those things still work. So, so my thinking, I think it's in Dubois, so you might've come across this, but this is a while back for me now, but it's so central, it's just in me. Is kind of my version of dialectics, I guess, which is what I call paralogical thinking, which is thinking in opposites and seeing them both together. So the community and the individual for me would be like, well, they're like right now, me and the, and the world. It's like they only exist together. They can't possibly exist for me apart from each other. And everything is in relationship. So that idea of seeing the individual separate from community is as 
limited as seeing community as not containing individuals. It, yeah, you somehow, and I are radical relationalists. The way yeah, I say it is we that really are. We, there's yes. a conversation going on here. And when we eventually, unfortunately, have to turn off the computers and go back to work again, uh, <laughs> there would be a byproduct of this conversation called Tim and another byproduct of this conversation called Alexander. But yeah. that's only because these bodies and these minds will then go into new conversations, new relationships, yeah. and the world consists of relations. Even yeah, in physics totally. today, you understand the world's relations. Yeah, I mean, I, I, yeah. I, I would push it because of this. This is the one in relationship with itself. It's like I'm not saying with that this is the one in relationship with itself. I'm saying this is the one in relationship with itself. That mm. it's the relationship which is which is everything. Literally everything. What exists, it feels, is these different intelligent systems in relationship with each other. And this is another idea that I've seen you use in this process of emergence that the, 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 what we've this great mythos that we've now got that can unite science and spirituality in my view and well everything can actually unite a narrative that can literally unite everything is this emergent mythos that we've we're on one journey that the whole thing is doing this and and you have this lovely idea maybe we should head to this while we've still got time but you have this lovely idea about god being the dreams that everyone's ever had and I've got this idea that the universe doesn't come from God, it's flowering as God. That's where it's... Yeah, that's synthism. So synthism is originally a theological term. I did not invent it. Uh, but John Sedeckis and I wrote the book called Synthism. And it's really Hegel's idea of spirituality and religion, that there's yeah. a certain geist that develops over time throughout history and its history itself. But when we try to think of the ultimate emergence that would happen, we have no better word for that than God. Yeah, And that's why I find it sort of naive to speak about atheism because when people are obsessed with atheism said that God does not exist. It's just like, well, number one, which God are you talking about? There are thousands of them. So they have to go through each one of these gods and the few goddesses and kill them all before they become proper atheists, right? They spend their whole life doing that. And then it's just like, well, if you're so obsessed with theos, uh, why, don't you, why don't you just put theos in the future? And they're like shocked you could do that. It's just like, but the way to overcome atheism dialectically is just to think that if theos is an important word for us, it's really the most beautiful word we can think of. Then why don't we just put God into the future if we don't need God in the past? We can always go and find some kind of God in the past later if you want to. Because obviously the Big Bang never happened. It was a big bounce. And, you know, it's a, there's so many weird things going on at the moment in physics and some physics, and also it, which is wonderful. Like you and I probably agree that there are two time dimensions as well. And that's also turned out to be correct. So the, 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 the metaphysics is a fantastic area to be these days. But when it comes to the word God, I prefer to put God in the future. And that is synthios. Synthios literally means God as creation or uh, the created God. That means that it's not God who creates us, it's we who create God. And I think that is a good terminology when I work with technology, which I do. I'm a philosopher of technology. I'm a philosopher of digital and the internet. So I work with engineers all the time. I do speeches and I work with them to inspire them to do stuff. And I said, well, God is the ultimate word for the ultimate technological innovation. Now make sure it's not the devil you're creating. Make sure it's God, because technology is always pharmacon. Technology in itself is neutral. Technology can be fantastic and can be absolutely awful. Look so at atomic see, energy. So the, this the, is to, to train engineers to think the right way. So Actually, to teach them theology is a really good thing. So you, you're, you're seeing the, the God of the synthiest religion as technological? Yes. Okay, okay. So that is different. 
I don't but think- defi- Definitely creative, so it could also be artistic. But today, with the sort of urgent needs that we have, if I speak to a bunch of young engineers and I tell them, Synthios is the name of the creative God. And if you think about it thoroughly, the day you've invented a technology that can save the planet for thousands of years and make it sustainable for human life, you've created God. And they all applaud. Mm. They get it. So they take in theology and they just go and say, I had no idea I was religious. But really, now I can really contribute as an engineer. This is way more than making money or having a career. This became so meaningful to me and I really want to pursue it. And this is what I want to work with as philosophers to train young men, especially to find a strong sense of identity and masculinity and then go for these, uh, go for these missions. That's why I love theology. I think this is what theology always did or should do. It was always pointing towards the future. What are we going to do with ourselves and where do we arrive as a society? And you can then go down on the individual or unidividual level or whatever you like and look at who am I then in all of this? Where do I put myself as a building block into the system? Where do I find the people I should collaborate with to you know, optimize my opportunities in life. And that's, that's the way to do it. That's when you should start studying yourself and work on your self-confidence and work on nutrition and health and getting a good exercise and then do something really, really meaningful with your life. And my God, we got tons of work to do. Wow. Well, (laughs) you are a, you, you are, you, you hold a very interesting, can I say, collection of insights together in a, in a very interesting way, Alexander. I really, really get it. I think there's a lot there I resonate with. I think the, the, the later stuff there, I, do, I see that development into God differently. I don't see it like technological and I don't see it as, um, as, as either like an imaginal product in itself. I think there's something transcendental that's happening. Um, which transcends and includes that. I think we're actually coming together as psyches to create something larger than us. That's what well, that, that's true, though, experience. because transcendence is a good word here. Because if you think of the emergences that have happened in history, number one, the big bounce or the big bang itself, the yep. beginning of physics and whatever was prior to yep. it, so physics, and then chemistry out of that, and then eventually, at least on this planet, biology. Biology, yeah. And then and our the life, and eventually then we got we got consciousness and, and yeah. sense. I, I prefer yeah. to use the word mind, actually. But they got mind. And also mind. when biology and mind started collaborating, we got culture. And yep. uh, all these things are emergences, like dramatic yep. things that suddenly just occurred. Yep. And what was a habit prior to it became a law within the system. This is how you do it properly, right? When we look at these emergences, they are transcendental in relation to one another. Exactly right. That exactly. is where transcendence here is important. I, yeah. I am also, when I'm saying to the young engineers, you haven't built this technology yet. You have to transcend where we're at right now for that technology to become a possibility. You can certainly work on technology and technology design in a transcendental manner. And actually, when you bring in the transcendence aspect of it, it becomes much more meaningful than just making money or being career successful or whatever. It gets a much higher purpose. So, so my hunch is the, trans- the, the, the technology with which we are giving birth to God or a transcendent, at another level on from psyche, from, from mind, which is uh, something greater than us, is actually the technology is thought it's actually it's actually it actually is the realm the bardos it is that realm of that whole dimension that people have been exploring since the earliest of times which is taken shape 
which as we've been doing everything else, it has become shaped. And what I loved about your thing earlier, I just want to pick up on that just for myself, that that fantastic idea in, when you described the, the, the split of church and state in Zoroastrianism and the idea of keeping it together by taking the, the second son or whatever it was from one into the other. I mean, that's so profound because what yes. I see is, what I see is that right from the very beginning, when ten, wherever it was, 10,000 years ago, when, when human beings started to become even remotely like us, there's that shift. The first thing they, they seem to have noticed is that they're constantly experiencing two worlds and not in some disjointed way, but there is, you know, the, the, there is the imagination and then sensation and the two are different. You know, that's my cup, that's my imagination of the cup and, and working with technology in both fields. So we have an idea of the early shamanic culture is often is the magical and then the, 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 the religious and mythic. And it's like, well, yeah, but they were also practical. <laughs> they, were, they were building hey, tools. Hey, the COVID-19 vaccines are shamanic products, right? Yeah, that's well, that's, that's right. Yes. So what you've yes. got is that interrelationship between the two, but you've got technologies which are working, you know, like I'm, I've got this axe and it's better than the axes before. And then you've got, I've got these ideas. I've got these images. I've got magical practices. There's, I can go off into this realm and start seeing what I can do in that. And they're constantly evolving together and in, re and in response to each other. Yes. And, and here, here is the tragedy of the separation of church and state in the West in the fifth century. And it was the same thing that happened in China. It's a similar problem in China. The, uh, Church and state are separate, like body and mind, but must also be kept together in the yeah. sense that the state and the market must, must also resign and submit to religion. And what I mean religion in this deep sense, that John Sodekosna used the word, is that it is the containment of, of all the human forces so that we actually serve a greater good in the long run, yeah, rather yeah, than just beautifully ourselves. Put, beautifully yeah, put, so beautifully this put. is what's lacking today. What happened in the West, That's already right. in the fifth century, was that the state and the market were split off from Christianity. Christianity was really a religion suitable for the church that it became, but it wasn't a religion at all for the military. It wasn't a religion at all for, for the priesthood. So that became eventually state and market and state and market being separate from that. And that's exactly why the West are solely responsible for plundering the planet later on, exploiting it almost to extinction. But the problem is the Chinese have the same, you have the same problem in China is that you separate church and state and the state religion became Confucianism and the church religion was put aside for Buddhism and Taoism and personal experience. And in reality, you need to put everything on religion, preferably not the same religion, that's the problem here. But if you look at imperial structures, they often have three different religions. They have one military religion and that's essentially, you know, the slaying of the, of the dragon and getting the reward. Like that's how you win war, that's how you win a hunt or whatever. Then you have the priest religion, which is like to the very core of reality, try to find out exactly what the truth is. Even if God is dead and everything is dark down there, you gotta go there somehow. That's the priest religion. And then you got the folk religion. That's what we call general pop culture. And that's perfectly fine. I mean, the Zoroastrians invented universal human rights simply for the reason they had several religions at the same time. And they thought that was a great idea because the different religions serve different purposes. And I think that's genius. Even India at its best has also separated these things into different religions with different purposes in society. And that's why India has been as peaceful as it has been for the past 2000 years. So I strongly believe in different religious systems for different purposes, but then overall, shared venue, which is usually a flag or something. We can use the nation state for that still or whatever, but, but you know, if at least we speak the same language, we can have a shared avenue, but we would expect 
the, the, the different forces to go off in different directions, but all must succumb and, 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 and submit to its own religious order, which essentially wisdom much reside over energy. Otherwise, we will not make it. We're all looking for that today in political philosophy too. We're looking for how, how do we contain state and market? But the problem was the state was supposed to contain the market. Well, the state hardly did that, did it? It made it even worse. Yeah, and, and, and none also, of them, none of them are actually submitting to some kind of religious order, which they really should. And, and I think also, don't don't you think also the big part of that? I mean, you went back further than this, but the thing which also I think also compounds it is um, the development and triumph of and success, massive, unbelievable successes of science, because you then got something which is hugely successful on the practical side. So using thought, but it's on this practical side, which is why it can do great good and great harm, and and can empower us in magical ways that we never even dreamed would be possible incredibly quickly and it's moving like a rocket. But it it can work on things that repeat. So it's very good on physics, not so good on biology, really terrible once you hit, hit, it hits the psyche because it, that's what it deals with. That's what it's really good at. So why it's very good at the practical and it's cut off from the soul. It's cut off from the psyche. So we've grown up in a thing where the religion is actually a non-religion. The, 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 the ideology, which in England is just like, religion is just dead. I mean, there is spirituality is taken off and that's this people are still having experiences but in terms of the culture i mean one of the things that really struck me in in my culture is looking at covid and thinking all i've seen is scientists i haven't and i honestly that's all i want to see i haven't seen any of the bishops will you know been on the television trying to help me understand what's going on they haven't had a look in it's just been like now nah, those people are irrelevant and that's yeah but we're also reminded that scientists will very soon put atomic bombs and chemical weapons and biological weapons and drones and send them into large populations and cause havoc. Sure, of course, because, yeah. because the last book we wrote, Digital Libido, is very dark because I yeah. think the next 50 to 100 years are dark. And unless it contain these forces under some kind of religious order, it will not work. So yeah. when science so that, says, that, so that's what's we, missing. So we got what, rid of God and look how great that was. It's so, like, yeah. oh, hey, Hiroshima 1945, start there. No, it's, it's, it's not, you know, it was scientists invented concentration camps and gassed 7 million people. Of, to of course, it's, it's, it's completely amoral. That's, yes, yes. It? It, it, it doesn't have that. I mean, it's, yeah. it's not because there, there's good people involved in trying to bring that in for sure, of course. But as a as an ideology, it, it's just about power. It's just about what well, energy is, you would call it. Totally nihilistic. And, yeah. and, and I don't, well, I don't not believe totally it. Nihilistic. I, don't believe, I think it is though. I think it is at the end yeah. of the day. Yeah, because there are good people in there. The good people in there because they're too terrified of themselves in a way. But if you're really honest about it, unless you have uh, an ideology here that is more containing, he will not work. And these are the teachings we have from since several thousands of years back. And this, for example, we talk about America so, today. The so, U.S. So, so. Constitution is a very religious text. It's very Read the U.S. Constitution, yeah, yeah. theological text you discover, and that's exactly why Americans, even now when they're fighting each other and it's Biden versus Trump and everything, yeah. they're all jumping back to referring to the Constitution because yeah, the only thing that keeps them together, and it probably, yeah. hopefully, will save the United States this time too. So, so um, we, we that's where we're at. I, th I think I think that's all right. Don't worry. So so so. Yeah, are you okay? Yes, I'm just going to turn it off. So one of the themes which 
comes up there for, for me and what I really um, am doing so busily, hence not getting the time to actually read your books from cover to cover yet, has been that in that way, if you look at those two sides to the way that human beings have engaged with these two things that they experience, the world of the imagination and the world of sensation, the, the sensory world, and the interplay between the two, what we've seen over this last period in the West and then across the whole world is an enormous exponential explosion in how well we deal with the physical world. So that what was being rejected during the Axel Age as a hellish place to get away from, we've busily gone, no, let's turn it into a good place where we're healthy and live a long time and have loads of pleasure. And, and, and we've done it, I mean, in unbelievable ways. But like you said, it needs this other side, this wisdom side, to if you call you know this informational knowledge side, this wisdom side. But that has hasn't evolved at the same rate at all. It's still, you know, the, the spirituality I encountered when I was young and the ones I, I encounter around me, apart from a few new fruity, crazy, like you know, create your own reality, all of that stuff, most of it that's of any quality is really, really old and hasn't moved. It hasn't kept evolving. So it's, it feels like it needs a, it needs to, we need to go in there and find what's good and to reinvent it. Yeah, the way I say, the way the I say it is that religion has gone downhill for 5,000 years. Technology has, <laughs> technology has gone uphill for 5,000 years. Almost <laughs> like sure technology, is, technology funny, has hijacked but... us to develop itself. And basically that's what we're seeing now. Uh, what I say that this might sound a bit simplistic, but I want us to shift from a religion of magic to a religion of technology. And it's not as far-fetched as it might sound because magic is where we get the inspiration from to build technology. So say a good technology, smartphones, if we finally manage to, to learn how to use them properly. You know, what used to be called telepathy and was a little trick that wizards would do in the past became the smartphone is so widely available for billions of people around the world. And it does create enormous favors because of it. So when we think of technology and technology design in that way that actually serves humanity, actually what we do is that we first develop an idea of some kind of magic and then that idea is what we build into a technology. It can, for example, I've got a close friend who builds electrical engines for cars. I think it's one of the most wonderful things you can do today because if you can get the diesel engines and the petrol engines out of the way, that's a big step forward to saving the planet, right? And, yeah. um, and I think it's fantastic because they're also now reinventing what it means to be a car. <laughs> so uh, the, the, that's great work. He's, he's a highly motivated friend of mine. He's a very happy guy. He goes to work every day. He's proud of himself because he should be. He's an ecotopian himself. So I think if you, if, if you think of technology and religion as connected in the sense that religion is basically what are the older, wiser people of the tribe teaching the younger ones that they should carry with them throughout life? as a containment, so they do the right thing at the right time, right? That is what religion originally was meant to do. For example, you had two rivers and you had two river cultures and they were constant warfare one another. And finally, one day, the two shamans and the two different tribes were bored with it, met and built a temple in between the two rivers. And these were the first cities 
and they became the first trading posts in history because people would just go there and and there of course the two shamans would declare that the original god in one tribe the original god in the other tribe actually have a shared ancestor or a shared father so you are actually brothers and sisters and that's how you create peace historically religion did this this is what religion does and and for aggressive atheists today who don't understand what religion is for they don't they not they understand nothing they don't understand how incredibly important religion is like I often say, religion is for men and spirituality is for women. <laughs> but I, I don't mean it as it demeaning. Says I, I, what I mean is that religion is often a more social organization. Where are we going to go together? Where spirituality is a more individual or individual exercise you do, which you can do later on to then, you know, contribute and make others follow and go with you on your mission. But we take, we take that spirituality is more decentralized, more local, religion goes much more global and, and it's more centralized and operates in, in a large, on a larger scale. I think that's the best way to use the two terms. Yeah, I can, I can understand what you're saying there, Alexander. There's so much you've said. There's so much to think about, goodness gracious me. Can I just say just in passing that I loved in one of your books, just make me laugh. <laughs> which is always a good sign. I really liked, there was a description of, I think it was one of your definitions where you said monotheism, which is basically atheism with a slight deviation. It's deviation, yeah. I thought that was lovely. <laughs> monotheism, atheism, no gods exist. Oh, with this exception. Yeah, with this, <laughs> this exception, one does. yeah. The one um, that benefits me, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Ours is real. So, yeah. Okay, so I, I can really get this beautiful insight and passion you've got towards the the social function of it um you know it's like and i really get that too i really really do get that uh, although i have a strong you know for me it's like yeah i'm really into the magic of technology massively i i really look forward to it and i spend a lot of my time standing up for it where it gets uh, it gets endlessly assaulted as if it's some sort of necessarily demonic force rather than something which could be used in all sorts of ways and uh but also i'm quite open to the idea that there is actual magic you know that i'm quite open to the idea that there's a level of reality which has emerged from the biological this level of the psyche which is as the shaman have been saying from the beginning you know, from the start which is actually a domain in its own right and which you can go off and explore in all sorts of ways and which is interacting with this one all the time are you and trying to seduce me to go with you to Peru and drink more ayahuasca? <laughs> well, it's one of the places where you could definitely explore it for sure. Oh, yes, yes. I wholeheartedly agree with that one. And it's not for everybody, but it's for a, mo a lot of people. More yeah, people I mean, it's, I mean it's, yes. just watching that take off has been extraordinary. Yeah. I mean, I, I took ayahuasca a long time ago when I was writing a book on shamanism um, with a couple of different shaman. And really, I had hardly heard of it and then i got you know and nobody i knew even knew of the word and and then suddenly i probably probably the thing one of the things i get asked the most at my retreats is what do you think about ayahuasca tim should i go and do it because <laughs> it's like suddenly there's this you know and that's why that's where I, I remain open to this idea that we're not as although we are types and we have different propensities there's it's kind of fluid as well that people Oh, can... but I love this, Tim, because I agree with you totally. I mean, we have become such passive cultural consumers, right? Television just put us there on the couch and let's see, watching drivel for hours every day. 
like if, if we weren't worth anything better than that. It's terrible, right? And then the internet came along and the telecom companies told us that you're now going to entertain one another. And we weren't trained for it. So this user-generated content we put out in the last 20 years has just been basically junk. And now we're sick of that. And now we're back watching Netflix and HBO. And at least it's better than television, to be honest about it, because it finally, I think we have got a golden age for storytelling ahead of us in the sense that anybody out there with oh. original idea can write a script and get it published today and have make them- Alexander, what is, I mean, maybe this is- The 2020 is going to be golden in that sense. It's like a golden era for, I think, for storytelling. But again, if we don't allow ourselves to go into our own minds and love our own minds and, and understand what our minds can do for us, which is universal and very deeply human, I think we completely miss the right here. Because if you fall back into the couch to be entertained by others, where the hell are we going to get our cultural self-confidence from if we just yeah. be passive consumers? Yeah. This is, why, yeah. it, this is why we talk about John and I in our work that avoid becoming a consumptarian. A yeah, consumptarian like is the word for the new underclass. That means like that. you stick within your own echo chamber, you have no self-confidence yeah. or expression. You stick only with people who share your ideas, no matter how crazy they are, because you don't dare go outside of that echo chamber. Yeah. And you're basically a cultural consumer, passive consumer, and you don't have, there's a wonderful word for it. It's interpassivity rather than interactivity. It's a nasty Interpassivity, that is a It's a really word. nasty word. Inter it, Fowler, Robert it, Fowler came up with it years ago, but I love it. But, but this is what I, when I talk to the kids today, I say, all you need to do is get up on your feet, make sure you have your own cultural output, or at least an interactive cultural output, where you collaborate with others in your cultural yeah, output. Yeah. And also go for the antagony, go for people who completely disagree with you, travel, that experience other worlds than your own, because that is how you become smart from now on. That's you become attractive. That's you become successful. All the self-help books today should really be about how do you challenge yourself with ideas you never thought you would think. So with this thing I'm working on right now, can I quote you on that? I like that very much. I find that really helpful. That go for the antagony. I think that is yeah. such a central thing for me. I mean, I think it's a beautiful word. We're even going to do a tour here in Scandinavia and call it antagonist this year because it, it's, it's stuck it. with so many people like, I want to be antagonic, not an antagonistic, but antagonic, meaning that I want to be open to challenge people and, and, and I want to be challenged. If I had to describe my daily life, I would say that's what I do with myself. I mean, I just go for long walks and have conversations with myself in which I am completely antagonic to my own ideas to see which ones will hold up and which ones it's will It's called schizophrenic with others, but with you, it's completely okay. Yeah. It's, you know, and, and what I love about yes. the dialogue, why all of this, I was talking to, I think you, you know, John Varaki and, and I was talking with him and, and what I loved is his idea of, di of a dialogos was that sense in which you can have these dialogues where you can play that role for each other, as well as endorsing and seeing the same thing from different angles and everyone becomes richer. And there's a lovely, I mean, you've talked, you've talked about, I remembered when I was, was having the conversation with him, I didn't mention it because we went off on different things, but you've talked about men a lot. And if I go back to the eighties, when the men's movement here really took off and it was all about going out into the woods with drums and all of that. And it was okay. Uh, Robert Bly, I'm, you know, I met Robert and did all that. And, and, and what really, what struck me was people kept on telling me Oh, men, you know, they're all like, they're all antagonistic to each other in that negative sense. They all want to be right. And, and, and I just thought, God, that's not how men are. Any of the men are no, not like no. that No, no. I've studied tribal cultures just for the past like 30 that. years. So, so it's all about collaboration. Was, 
Everything's I got, about collaboration. I, I just got together. We, I, I was reading Plato at the time. So I got together to said, I'm going to run a symposium. And we put together a symposium. I invited 12 men, told them to bring a question and their drug of choice. And we would gather together for an evening and we would just pull the questions out of a hat and we'd address the questions. And we went through all 12 things and most of us were still standing by the end, just about. But what struck me was there was no competition. Everyone was looking for the truth. Everyone's looking for the deepest idea. And if someone said, like listening to you, if someone says something which you go, I haven't thought that before, the excitement oh, yeah. when you get that new, that's where it lies. That's the, that's, I think. Yeah, that's, it's just like when you're writing and you, you want to say this, I'll certainly say to you now, can I credit you for that? It's just like, yeah. yes. Because you do that in conversations today. You do webcasts, podcasts. I mean, the new book, we're going to have more references to webcasts and podcasts than we do to other books. Yeah, I mean, exactly. it's, just, it's just a natural shift now that's exactly. happening. And, and the joy coming out of that, like this person opened my mind in a new direction I never thought yeah. of before. Yeah. And why else? I mean, what else is that? And that comes from physical stuff too. It's just like uh, collaboration is key and competition is contained. The yes. point with competition is that it's contained. Either yeah. it's war, if it's really like sports. It has to be, like sport. or it's sports, but it's contained. And the point with sports is that there are rules and you yeah. basically just try. So who's the best guy in our group at this? Who's who's yeah. who, who's who's the strongest guy? So we know who's the strongest when we need that capacity, yeah. right? Yeah. That's what sports do. And they're completely contained. And, and the problem, and at the end of the day, we also love, you know, team sports because they, they show off how contributive you are in, in your collaboration. Those are the those are the favourites, you know. That yes. when you watch a team, you know, when I watch a game of football, what I love about it is that it's massive cooperation, massive competition. It's all there. There's rules. Yeah. There's freedom within it. It's individual. It's collective. It's like the whole thing is. There's guys at the back who don't go anywhere and just stand there and go, "You shall not pass." And there's guys at the front who are going, "Come on, let's go forward. Let's go forward." And if yeah, the guys at I the front go I forward can't... too quickly, it's a disaster. And if people at the back don't go forward at all, it's a disaster. And it's like everything's written in there. The and you have no thing. idea how many hunting teams consist of eleven guys. The vast majority of them. So is that right? Yeah, these are archetypes. This is what archetypes. I never are. heard that. I never. The heard reason that. why these that. sports become so successful is because they match our archetypology. This is why I talk to people these days about archetypology. I talk about it for women. I talk about it for men. Anything in between as well. I say archetypology. I think is the future because we now have the data. We can do data anthropology. We can point out what kind of people people really are, so they can get some proper guidance when they're young. Like, okay, this is your primary archetype. It's probably what you do with these. You don't even you haven't even figured out this fantastic, but the rest of us worship you for it. Then you have a secondary archetype, and that's what you can do if you have to, but it will take a large effort to do. I it. love that. I love so that. One of, only one knowing of the... those two things, like that's major minor. We go to college in America. It's just like if you figure out your primary primary or secondary archetype, and you have the chance to explore both during your lifetime, you're a lucky guy. And, and you don't even have to see psychologists once you figure that out, because to see the psychologist who then puts pills inside of you to become like everybody else, because he hasn't even figured out that human beings are archetypes primarily, when I, I think love that's the that. most humane And I thing. love the secondary, and I really relate to that yeah. massively. And I, I think it's incredibly helpful. Yes. And I, I just wanted to just very quickly, you know, let's try and draw this to a close, I guess. But, you know, talking about, again, you know, the football match, what I, for me, it really helped. And this is your types again, was that for someone who's always felt like when I was younger, I was very much, you know, a progressive, wanting change, revolution, blah, blah, blah. And that's my nature. And looking forward. 
and but actually just one day just going you know, for very, just looking at the uh, at football and going oh there's conservatives and there's progressives in this team there's the and it's a team they're all on the same side yeah and i've been seeing them as on different sides but there's people whose job is to say don't let the past the good you know don't let the goal in because if we let one in we're fucked and there's other people at the front going yeah but if we don't score one we're fucked as well and it's like and somehow that's held together in the middle and it's one team with these different types who play these different roles. And there's something about if we can get that, the way in which, and that's what I'm hearing and what you're saying, with these tribes within a cosmopolitan vision, that we can see each person playing their role, finding their thing, which is them with theirs, but yet that within the whole, then yeah. there is it's a It's a lot vision. about scale. It's a lot about scale. Yeah, so, a lot so about scale. To figure that out. And then, when you do find general theories, it's stuff that we work on, for example, called membranics. And you, you mentioned before that we've actually figured out how to run modern cities without people dying in them and actually people thriving in them. And that was the last 100 years and a major achievement in history. Yeah. Um, but membranics is a good way to talk about that. It's just like, what do you let in and what do you kick out? What, uh -huh, what, what, uh -huh. what is there that you got to get out? What, what, what has become uh -huh. poisonous in the community to get out? And what can you let in? And you can then go from smaller life forms all the way up to the planet itself. And you can think of membranics all the way. So instead of thinking of the sphere itself or the domain itself or the village or the nation, why don't we just talk about membranics itself? Like what is a good thing to get in here and what do we need to get out? And what do we have to take care of in the outside world? Because it's, 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 you know, it's, it's knocking the door and it needs to be dealt with because otherwise we will get attacked by it. So the, the membranics is a good way of working with scale up and down. But to think that alike. Is... So biologists can work with physicists, can work with chemists, can work with, with people who do urban planning, can work with politicians, can work with people who work with all kinds of scales. So that's and of course, when you do when it? you design groups um in the digital realm, the same thing. I mean, can you create echo chambers that are encouraged to go for antagony? Yeah. I think they'd be much more attractive if you do. Yeah, definitely. And if you design an algorithm for your playlist on Spotify, can we throw in a track now and then that you wouldn't exactly. expect to find exactly. there? It probably will irritate you, but Please keep it there because it could actually take off your musical taste in a whole new interesting direction. Exactly. And that feels so obvious with the echo chamber. Yes. That we've, the problem we've got. It, it's not the add button it, we need in the algorithms. It's the antagony button. Yeah. And that, that, yes. that, 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 that the algorithm is a great idea, actually, it, to give you what you need. But what you need is not just things that you think you need. What you need is also the antagony you also need yeah you don't need else. just based you on your old previous behavior must, they, and that must be built into the algorithm because otherwise you just become a repetition and, of yourself, and so that's, that's your membrane that, yes. that, that what's yes. coming yeah. in is also yes. a lot i love that and that's the yeah. relationship that's isn't it yeah i, I that's so deep alexander mm. membranics membranics genius. great genius. word people get it right away yeah yeah it's genius it's really good yeah and it's like i said think think of yourself as running a fort in the medieval age in Europe and, you know, we're threatened by the outside world, right? But yeah. you need a trait to, you know, to survive within the fort. You don't put a stupid guy at the port. You put the most clever guy at the port. You put the guy who knows people at the port. That is how important the membranics are. It has to be something where you put people in charge you really trust, who've been around and seen things before. Wise people. Wise people, yes. 
thank you so much. It's been such a delight. My God, it's like, it's like full of so many things. It's, it's like, I, I told you, I was like reading the book. It just felt like, whoa, there's bits all over here. Which is, and it's been like that in the conversation. I'm not absolutely 100% sure. I feel the scene needs to hold, the, the whole thing fits together, but that will come. Um, but in the meantime, it has been just absolutely um, delightful. And we haven't even talked about metaphysics, which is like a we haven't. I did fair try an obsession. You, you both, both you and I are time philosophers. But that's another episode or something. Yes. Yeah, time. We got to get back to that. Me. Well, well, let, let's do it again. And, yes. Yes. That's um, a good one. I'm so delighted we're connected. And um, yes. Yeah. Good. 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 Very uh, good. Have you, a great day. Whenever you put it out, send me a link and I'll put I it will. through all my channels. And, and I really, truly enjoyed this conversation. Too. Me too. Absolutely. Yes. Thank you yep. so much. And until the next time. I'll go out and have a drink here, but think of you while I drink. <laughs> Big hug to you. And brother. you. Absolutely. Yes. yes.